you'd remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen, since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. I want to take a minute and um, thank all those who came to the barbecue and fellowship night last Sunday. Uh, for those of you that helped set up, helped serve food, provided desserts, allowed the church to use your cornhole set, and thank you to those who hung around and helped get everything cleaned up. It was just a good night, a great time of fellowship, and a good opportunity for us to gather together, and so thank you. Man, there's a lot of you left. Okay. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing our look in the building blocks of faith that are contained in the Apostles' Creed. As we are seeing the Apostles' Creed, if we want to look at it this way, as a short summary of our faith. That essentially it tells us what it means for us to be Christian. And if we are to water everything down, the things that are left are these statements that we read and re-recite together in the Apostles' Creed. As I've spent time reading about the Creed, I've found a few different descriptions of the Apostles' Creed, and I don't know how many more I'm going to be able to find, but last week I shared the example of the field with a fence, where we talked about how the field of belief is the field, and how the Apostles' Creed serves as the fence to tell us, basically, here are the parameters of what it means for us to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what it means for us to be a Christian. And so basically we, we saw or we looked at or thought about how you can be anywhere in the field as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a Christian and still be within the basics of what it means to be a Christian. It's when we go outside of the fence or outside of the 12 statements of faith that the Apostles' Creed lines out that we get where we're not in, in the norm of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and our belief. And so this morning I found a different example. It's a little different. And so if you'll begin by thinking about a stock pot, a big pot that you put on the stove, and, and in this pot we place all of the mainstream beliefs and theologies of what it means to be a Christian throughout history. Once they're placed in there, we get it boiling. And once everything has boiled down, the 12 statements of faith are what are left in that pot. The things that we recite, 
As followers of Jesus Christ, whenever we recite and whenever we repeat and whenever we proclaim the Apostles' Creed as an affirmation of faith and an affirmation of what we believe together. See, everything that's not essential has been boiled off. Leaving us with what is important. So friends, why I share you this, uh, share with you this example this morning is I think it's helpful because it helps us to see that every word in this creed that we recite is intentional. There's no accidental words that have been included in the Apostles' Creed. It means that every phrase has meaning. Things aren't just thrown into the Apostles' Creed, and it means that every thought that we share as we read these words and the ones that are are to come in this sermon series, every thought is theologically rich. Meaning it helps us to define our understanding of God and our understanding of Jesus Christ and what we believe as Christians. So for Christians, the Apostles' Creed can be compared to the Ten Commandments. Both of these serve the same purpose. They, they help to keep believers connected to God. And, and if you think about it, the Ten Commandments is similar because it also provides essentials of what it means to be in relationship with God. And so if we look to the Old Testament, there are 613 laws in the books of laws of the, the Old Testament. And so out of those 613 laws, The Ten Commandments takes all of them together and basically comes out with ten that are the essential ones. So if it's like our pot example, we could throw all of the 613 laws of the Jewish faith into a pot, boil them off, and the things that would be left are the ten essentials or the ten most important, as we look at them as Christians today, which would be the Ten Commandments. See, friends, the the Apostles' Creed serves the same purpose. The Ten Commandments were a summary to help remind Israel of their core, of their beliefs, and of their worship of God. And so the Creed does the same thing for us. So whenever we recite it, it's a great summary of faith that calls us back to our core identity of what it means for us to be Christians, what it means for us to be followers of Jesus Christ, what it means for us to be people who who actively seek and pursue forgiveness and everything else that God offers us. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the third statement of faith in the Apostles' Creed. Last week we we read the one that said... um, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And we talked about how in Jesus God came. And so today we're talking about who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I'm going to be honest. As we're thinking about this scripture, it's a little out of place for us to be reading it today, isn't it? This is a passage from Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, if you follow the lectionary, which we do in the church in terms of devotionals and and upper rooms and other things, but we most commonly read this passage of Scripture about the third Sunday in the season of Advent. When we look at joy and when we talk about, about Mary's response when the angel Gabriel comes to her and she sings the Magnificat and, and celebrates how God has selected her among all women to bring, usher forth and, and to be the one through which Christ is born. And so it's a little out of place for us to be reading this passage of Scripture. It's going to be, you know, 85 today and it's hot and sunny. There's no Christmas trees up in here yet. It's not Advent But in some ways, it's kind of unfortunate for us to only consider that passage of Scripture during the Advent season. 
Because it tells us far more than just about the birth of Jesus Christ. Because it tells us of the way that God chose to come into the world, clothed in flesh and born by a young woman named Mary. See, as we read this passage, it tells us how Jesus was part of God's plan. How Jesus was not accidental. How Jesus was not something that just came about without planning and without God having purpose behind him. Luke 1 tells us that Jesus is the way. That God has chosen to be in relationship with humanity and with creation. And so it's essential for us, if we're talking essentials of the faith... For us to recognize that over 2,000 years ago, God broke into this world and did in human history as a baby who was named Jesus. Who lived, who breathed, who walked among us as Emmanuel or God with us. And so the birth of Jesus Christ is extraordinary. And the Apostles' Creed tells us this essential truth of why it was so extraordinary. In Jesus, God became a child. That child became a man. That man willingly bore the weight of of all the sin of the world upon his shoulders. He is the Messiah who has come to save us all and, and all of us who call on his name and who believe in him. And so it's essential for us to recognize the two truths that we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed this morning when we say conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Why is this important? See, when we read this line in the Apostles' Creed, we're reminded of the scripture that we just read from Luke chapter 1 where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she is going to be with child. And Mary says, how is this so? I've I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And, And God says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But we're also reminded of another passage of Scripture, which comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John's a little different in the way he writes his Gospel. John doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the birth of Jesus, the interaction with Joseph and Mary, or any of that. John just tells us who Jesus is in a theological sense, not in a practical sense, but in a theological sense that where he says, Jesus is the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. See, John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was in God and and with God. Through Him all things were made. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John takes a different approach to get us thinking about who Jesus is and what Jesus was. Because John wants us to see that Jesus was the Word made flesh. If we're going to read anything else in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, it's that John wants us to see and to believe and to, to... to understand what it means for Jesus to be the incarnation, what it means for us to see how in Jesus God became flesh. And so John spends time on this. In fact, biblical scholars from ancient times um, engaged in more than just theological arguments. At times their arguments got physical. Over this understanding that we're talking about this morning, about the incarnation of Jesus and about what it means for for him to be fully God and fully human. See, Jesus is both. He's not a 50-50 mix. He's not half God, half divine, or half divine, half human. He's fully 100% of both. It's not like if you're going to Sonic or McDonald's and you order a half sweet tea and a half unsweet tea. 
See, Jesus is both fully all of the way. And that's one of the great mysteries of faith. We recite it when we share in Holy Communion and use the, the traditional liturgy and the rite that we talk about and we often use in worship. Where we declare that Jesus is a mystery. We declare that we don't fully understand what and how God works to us and through Him. But we also acknowledge that God can and do far more than we ever can understand. And that's the incarnation. That's the understanding that in Jesus Christ, God came and He was both fully human and He was both fully divine. And words can't explain it fully. And some of the greatest questions and some of the greatest theological debates have centered around this. His conception, his birth. And in Luke 1, it tells us that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and, and told her that the Holy Spirit would be upon her and that the child that she would bear would be the Son of God, the salvation of the world. While questioning how could this be, Mary uh, demonstrates obedience and humility. And she shows us that God chose not to come into this world through extraordinary people, people that are already set up on a pedestal that others are looking to, but that God used an ordinary young woman in the person of Mary. And so that's something that we can always be reminded when we read this passage of Scripture and when we, we talk about this part of the Apostles' Creed, is that with the power of the Holy Spirit, God can and God does use every one of us for His work. Maybe not coming to us in the form of the angel Gabriel to tell us that something amazing is going to happen. I shouldn't say because who wants that, but, um, but that's a little intimidating to think about. But it shows us that, that the only thing that God needed for Mary to be used was a willing heart and an ability to accept the, the need to use her, of, of God to use her. Even as she had questions, even as she had doubts, even as she said, let it be with me as you will. Because see, Mary was an ordinary, regular person. And just like you and I, she was given the opportunity to respond to the grace of God and to His work in this world, which is something that you and I have each been given. And so when we recite this phrase in the Apostles' Creed, it was included to remind us, to remind Christians for generations following the birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the creation of the church, it was included to demonstrate and to remind us that, that Jesus was not just born, Jesus didn't just come, but Jesus was born without sin. And that makes him more than just a powerful prophet of God. It makes him more than, than a, someone that they can compare to the prophet Elijah. It makes him more than, than just comparing him to Moses. It reminds us that Jesus is God himself. And that if we look in the Old Testament, there are two ways that, that people can become sinners. The first is, is in the book of Genesis and the creation of Adam and Eve. And we've read the creation story. And this theological belief is called the belief in original sin. And it tells us that, that through the tasting of fruit and through the, from the tree of knowledge that Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. 
And then when they ate that fruit, it was a rebellion against God. And when Adam ate of the fruit, he didn't just eat it on his own. He did it as a representative for all of humanity. And so in the idea or concept or theological belief of, in, of original sin, we are all acknowledging that we're born into a sinful world. We're born susceptible. We know the temptation to sin. We know the, what it means to commit sin. We know what it feels like to commit sin. We know and, and we deal daily with the sins of others. And all of us battle with this inclination. In fact, Paul writes that we're all dead in our transgressions to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2. And then the second way that we know about sin is that we're all sinners through our own actions. Our own words, our own thoughts, our own deeds. We've all sinned by what we do in addition to by what we leave undone. And so for Jesus to be sinless, for him to be without sin, even as he resisted temptation, even as he faced the sin that possibly was before him, he had to be born without sin. And that took this statement, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born by the Virgin Mary. He wasn't born with sin like you and I are. He was born of God through the womb of Mary who was fully human. And one of the great conflicts of the church was over the divinity of Jesus and the virginity of Mary. And, and there are even leaders of the church today that, that teach was Jesus was nothing more than a good moral man, not the Son of God who is fully divine. But friends, whenever we recite this phrase, we are saying He's both. We are saying that he who was born without sin came into this world to take the weight of sin upon his shoulders. In one of the books I've been reading about the Apostles' Creed, there's a biblical scholar, Timothy Tennant. He uses this example to describe the incarnation, and I think it's helpful. I'm going to mispronounce it. Uh, he uses the example of Trafalgar Square. I've never been there. Trafalgar, is that how you pronounce it? What did you say? Trafalgar, thank you. The square was built to remember um, and recognize the, the victory of Britain in Trafalgar, which was a, a naval battle in 1805. Lord Horatio Nelson was a commanding admiral at this battle. He was wounded and later died from his wounds in this battle. And so to remember the Lord Nelson, you can see the column that's standing there in the middle of the, the, the square. Uh, Lord Nelson's statue is on the top. The column is 169 feet, 3 inches which I guess is 20-something feet less than they originally thought. Uh, the column is so tall that you could not stand at ground level and see the detail of Lord Nelson's statue. And so in this example, he says there is a, a duplicate statue that's built at the bottom in this square so that you can see what you cannot see because it is so high. Because at ground level, it's impossible to see the statue that's 169 feet in the air. And so here's the example, as he says that's like the incarnation, is that if we look and think about God, who's that Lord Nelson statue at the very top, God is too good, God is too great, God is too mighty, God is far more than you and I could ever conceive or imagine in our human minds. We just can't comprehend it. We can't see it. He's far more than we can imagine. But in the incarnation, God came down in Jesus Christ, which would be like the statue on the ground. So that we could see his face, so that we could experience his glory, and so that we could know, so that we could know the love of God and the work of God in this world.
In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus is teaching the disciples on who He is and why He has come. He tells the disciples that He must leave them and return to the Father, and He tells them that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples didn't quite get what Jesus was teaching, did they? Philip's response was, Lord, show us the Father. They didn't get it. They'd witnessed miracles. They'd heard and seen healings. They had been able to listen to the teachings of Jesus. They had seen Jesus walk on the water. They'd watched Him resist sin and resist temptation. They still didn't get it. And so Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. See, this is the incarnation. It's Jesus who is the Father, Jesus who is God in the flesh, Jesus who walks among us, Jesus who gave himself up for us and who offers us forgiveness, not by your work, not by my work, but by his grace. That's what we celebrate today. That's what we remember when we declare that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, is that in God he came down so that you and I might experience life. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes this. He says, From all eternity the Son is in the Father, and the Father is one with the Son. Yet in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. See, those Paul's interpretation of what the Incarnation is. Is that Jesus always is and always was and always will be. But yet, in Jesus, God came to live and to die and to be resurrected so that we might have life. 